Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Catholic Talk Show. We have an awesome episode today. We're going to be talking about near-death experiences. Yeah, we're joined with Father Spitzer from the Magicenter and Credible Catholic to explore what happens when a person dies and comes back to life and what that experience is like. I'm reminded of the prophet Isaiah from chapter 25, something that we hear so often with respect to the liturgies of the funeral. On this mountain, he will destroy the veil that veils all peoples, the web that is woven over all nations. He will destroy death forever. I hope that this veil is lifted, and I am confident with Father Spitzer here, we're going to have a very amazing conversation and see through that veil. I'm I'm really excited about this episode in particular because I had the honor and the blessing of hearing Father Spitzer uh, uh, share this uh, study, this this scientific study, so beautifully at the Napa Institute Conference a few years ago. And for those of you who don't know Father Spitzer, he's a Jesuit. Uh, He's out in California, I believe, and um, a, a man that literally exudes the glory of the cross as he is blind and he's wearing his shades you know, because he's just an awesome dude. And so we're real. I'm just, I'm, I've been excited to have this conversation with you since we started emailing you father. And uh, I'm, I'm so excited for our audience too, as well. Oh, thanks. It's a real honor to be with you. And, uh, I have to say, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not the rock star priest, just a blind guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and since we first started this, this show, this podcast, Uh, It's always been really a desire of ours to have you on. You were literally the first conversation that we ever had when conceiving doing the show. We said how great it would be to have Father Spitzer on because of how much we esteem your intellect and the the way that you talk and evangelize. So really, thank you so much for coming on, Father. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We actually conceived this show at the Napa conference. Oh, wow. No kidding. Two and a half years, I believe, in running. Uh, All glory be to God. Oh, great. So let's start with uh, a near-death experience. Like my uh, my grandmother, when she passed away, when I was in college, had all of her children around her. She had five children around her. Um, and she went out in and out of this. It was it was hospice. She died of cancer. Um, God rest her soul. And, and one of the most amazing experiences where she was in and out of consciousness with what I maybe believe would be heaven. I mean, she saw some of her family. She saw her horse. I mean, it was, and then she'd come back and then she'd see her kids. And I mean, it was just this really glorious moment. She reached her hands up to, uh, to the sky and just uh, breathed her last. It was a very beautiful moment for my family. Uh, and something that 
obviously, uh, as a Catholic, as a Christian, uh, I looked at in uh, wonder, amazement, but also in curiosity. And so um, as we begin this conversation about a, a, a near-death experience, um, you're going to be sharing with us scientific information, which is fascinating. Why don't we begin with um, just the, uh, the output of what was studied and how uh, near-death experiences in this study were classified before we begin speaking about um, some of the more of the details? Yeah, what right. exactly is an NDE? Right. Yeah. So um, a near-death experience generally has uh, two components. <clears throat> Your grandmother uh, would not be precisely a near-death experience. Uh, that's what's called a deathbed vision. And uh, there are many of them, and my grandfather certainly had one um, himself. But a near-death experience occurs when clinical death occurs. And clinical death occurs when you have a flat EEG, that's a flat electroencephalogram. That means there's no electrical activity detectable either in the cerebral or frontal cortex. Uh, there might be a few sputterings of neurons uh, electrically in the lower brain, but at best, that is it. So the person is essentially uh, called clinically dead because they cannot perform um, what we might call a thinking fun uh, function. So that would be like uh, uh, some kind of cognition uh, that would happen, memory that might happen, recall that might happen. Um, nothing like that could happen because all those things take place in the cerebral cortex. And if the brain is going to do it, then the brain has to have electrical activity. So we would say at that juncture, there's no way the brain is doing the thinking. And yet at the very moment when you have flat EEG, fixed and dilated pupils, no gag reflex, meaning that the vast amount of electrical energy is not really coursing through even the lower brain, at that point, people say that uh, a soul, and I have no doubt that it's true because I, I have uh, very good reasons that I'll explain in a moment, but uh, that people say, yeah, a sort of a spiritual body left my physical body. So in other words, um, you know, uh, a, a soul-like uh, um, you know, image, right? It's extended. It feels like a body uh, internally. Um, and this person can see, can hear, can taste, uh, and not really taste, but they can, they can sense, uh, uh, you know, what's going on around them. And not only that, they can um, actually recall all of their memories. In fact, their memory is more acute uh, in their um, uh, clinically dead state um, uh, in the spiritual body than it is in their physical body. And furthermore, they can defy physical laws. So this, uh, uh, what I'm going to call spiritual body, can go right through walls, uh, just like our Lord right there. It can go up and down, so it can defy gravity. Physical laws have no effect on um, this person. And so there's many, many accounts of people who are reporting what's going on outside of the hospital. So uh, at this point, we say that the person is not um, obviously uh, thinking or feeling, recalling or remembering with their physical brain or physical body. There has to be some other nexus of consciousness, some other source of consciousness that is a more or less spiritual, that is surviving their bodily death, but nevertheless was a few moments ago, 
uh, continuous with the body. But now it's existing, living independently of the physical body. And um, why am I so convinced uh, that this is in fact the case? Because uh, first of all, we have a lot of things called, a lot of evidence called veridical data. And vertical data means that you have an unusual occurrence that has been witnessed by somebody, right? Um, when they were clinically dead, when they're incapable of thinking, seeing, hearing, processing of information through the physical brain, right? When this occurs, they actually witness unusual events, report it in 100% accurate detail, which is far beyond anything that's done by witnesses in a court of law. So that's one of the stipulations. This has to be 100% accurate. And furthermore, uh, was verified by independent researchers after the fact. So for example, um, you know, somebody will come in and say, say to a patient who's just been resuscitated, oh, Mr. So-and-so, we lost your dentures. And the fellow will say, well, no, you, you didn't lose my dentures. I can tell you exactly where they are. The nurse with the red hair took the dentures out of my mouth just before you put the paddles on me uh, to resuscitate me. Now she opened a drawer <coughs> underneath the machine, which looks like this. And that was an <clears throat> OR number eight. She pulled out the drawer, threw the dentures in, closed the drawer. And if you go back in OR eight and you find that, uh, uh, machine that looks like this, just open the drawer, my dentures will be there. Sure enough, there they are. So uh, people go, well, wow, that, that is extraordinary. But it's not just that. People will go outside of the hospital. For example, one lady uh, just simply went right through the hospital walls um, and she was kind of floating up there uh, around the third floor uh, of the hospital, but looking, she's outside the hospital floating up there near the third floor and she's looking back at the hospital and sees a sneaker, probably of a construction worker who um, had, was working on that building 20 years before, and it had fallen on a ledge and it had a worn left toe and the shoelace was stuck underneath the heel there, it was very dirty, very old. And so she says, you know, that you, you can't see it from the outside, but that tennis shoe, I saw it from up above looking down on it. And it's there on the third floor ledge. So one of uh, um, uh, one of the doctors who was investigating uh, sent his researcher out on that ledge, and sure enough, there was the tennis shoe precisely as described. So this kind of veridical data, and by the way, there's thousands upon thousands of cases of this kind of veridical data, which is occurring when somebody is clinically dead, incapable of seeing, hearing, you know. Uh, uh, um, thinking, recalling, uh, you know, any co cognition of any kind. So well, that can I stop you just one second? Sure, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm deeply curious about um, the 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 use of, let's say, for lack of a better term, the will to to move the body. Yeah. Is is this a free sort of experience where they're just taken somewhere, or is this something that you know they? they can recall maybe with this data that they moved in a particular direction themselves? Well, they, both cases, both cases. Yeah. In some cases, for example, in the case of the lady that went through the, um, through the hospital walls and was kind of looking at the hospital from the outside, uh, you know, she reported that, you know, she was interested in looking at what was going on out there. 
And in another case, when a guy went through the walls and, for example, uh, went into the waiting room next door, he was taken there. Uh, he was actually just sort of taken there. Uh, in the case of, you might remember that book, um, Heaven is for Real, uh, yeah. this little kid, Col Colton Buffo, that, uh, that um, you know, uh, he, he was taken there. So he, he sees his mother and his father. They're in two different rooms. Uh, during his uh, near-death experience, and so he's hearing his father praying and, and sort of uh, uh, kind of, you know, uh, kind of get, letting God have a little bit of what for. He was a little bit angry and impatient, and his mother is sitting there on the phone, and he could even recollect parts of her conversation with her friends about what was going on. And so, um, you know, but he, again, he was taken there. So it seems to happen on both levels. People go through the walls of the of the waiting room, um, and they didn't even know there was a waiting room there when they went through the wall. But then, you know, there they find themselves, and they hear their relatives. But never speak badly of the dead, uh, because of course, uh, uh, <laughs> here's this guy listening to every single thing they're saying, and um, he can even report, well, you know, you had my T-shirt on, as a matter of fact, in that waiting room, et cetera, et cetera. So. So, um, yeah, but it goes both ways. So okay. yeah, there is a moment of will, but there's also the dimension. When you're taken in part two of the experience, when you're taken to a heavenly domain or not so heavenly uh, domain, that part you do not will yourself to. In that case, when you go to that part two of the experience in another non-earthly domain, that um, occurs by being taken. So that's not a matter of your will. Father Spitzer, I, you know, just the experience pastorally, uh, you know, I've been a priest now for eight years and just connecting with people at every stage. You know, I'm so glad that you identified the distinction between like visions that happen in, you know, near death experiences, like leading up to death. I've I've witnessed that firsthand. And then I've been present as as people uh, pass away and and being mm. present in those places are some of the most uh, pastorally intimate experiences that I have in my priesthood and I cherish them each and every time that that I get to be present as a privilege from God and an opportunity to witness firsthand this experience of of Christ shepherding people through death and through that experience and and almost hearing what you're expressing like you can be led and then okay. and it, it, what a what a fascinating thing and just already experiencing just being pastorally cared for by your ministry listening to what you're sharing and how much these implications can be applied to my own pastoral care is mm -hmm. very very helpful in respect to your your studies which seem to be just so extensive in relationship to these near death experiences um how have you seen that play out in your pastoral care for people? I'm sure that you're you're probably pulled into so many experiences and and stories. Oh, for sure. Um, well, because I do these uh, the, the uh, kind of the research component of of uh, near death studies, uh, for sure, a lot of people uh, relate to me their own stories. So I've heard a lot of people tell me stories. Uh, my very first assignment when I was ordained, the, the next week after my ordination, I was a hospital chaplain in two hospitals in Oregon. Um, and so, uh, um, <laughs> believe me, um, I sh saw people shepherded uh, 
you know, by the Lord uh, to their reward. And as I was just saying, um, this was a near, this was not a near death experience. At, um, but my grandfather, when uh, he was dying, um, you know, the family surrounded him and he was basically talking to the angels. So, you know, at one point he, he was speaking in Dutch, he was a Dutch citizen, uh, but came over, you know, to the United States to, to build, uh, you know, the, to work on the architecture of Pearl Harbor a long time ago, way back in the 1920s. But anyway, he, uh, he uh, was speaking Dutch to the, to the angels. And then finally somebody said, well, granddaddy, who are you speaking with? And he said, oh, well, I'm speaking with the angels. I, like he thought we could see them. Mm-hmm. So of course, uh, I know several of my family members that he knew angels. The poor guy's just a little. <laughs> and no, how do you qualify that in your studies? That's like a a, a near death like apparition we'll, or, we'll call or those uh, we'll call those deathbed visions. Deathbed and visions. Okay. Actually, get visited by um, either a deceased person or by angels or even by Christ, uh, and and little kids almost always have deathbed visions if they have a terminal illness they know they're going to die they're you know the they you know they're almost always visited uh by uh, either jesus or uh, some angelic being but in my case of my dad you know he says uh, my grandfather goes well you know talking to the angels and so at one point you know as he's chattering away he looks up and he says may i go now and everybody said well well sure and he dies just like that, just like that. Wow. And so, of oh course, my goodness. Goes, you think there really were angels? <laughs> <laughs> I've I've been right next to a beautiful lady. I'll never forget it to the day I die. And I was I was closer. I I I did the sacrament. You know, I celebrated the sacraments with her. I did the commendation ritual, and yeah. I looked in her eyes, and they filled with light. And she started to tear up, and she expressed to me. She said, "Father." The angels are all around me. It's yeah. they're so beautiful, yeah. and 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 you could see that like she was looking through me, <laughs> and she was seeing something that was far. You know, I I, I would have loved to see, it, but I saw it in her eyes. You know, and yeah. I'll never forget that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I don't think there's any uh, delusion to this at all. I think that people really are visited, and you know, with the little kids. You know, the little the deathbed vision often happens the day before, which gives the little child, you know, a chance to explain to the parents, you know, Mm. well, you know, an angel came and talked to me um, last night and he told me that I'm going to die at 2.30 today, but I just wanted to tell you everything's going to be all right. Oh, my goodness. That angel told me that I'm going to go to heaven and he wanted me to tell you that everything will be all right. And then at 2.30, had my grandfather's experience. Right on cue, bingo. That boy just dies and that's that. He didn't even know what time it was. He just passed to the Lord right at that moment. So this kind of brings us into where you're going with this study. And, and you you know, we were talking about moving through balls with or without will and then uh, yeah. or whatever you want to call it. And then, um, and then being taken to a place, and you mentioned taken to a good place. Uh, were there also bad places? Like, and and yeah. I know part of your study was detailing these events that occurred, and and some of the similarities between them, where we can draw some sort of analysis from it. 
Yeah, exactly. So, well, here's the some statistics. Uh, Samuel Parnia had a very extensive study. Dr. Samuel Parnia uh, published in peer-reviewed uh, magazine, Journal of Resuscitation, um, which is, I believe, still available free of charge right on the website. So if you just put Samuel Parnia, P-A-R-N-I-A, uh, you'll get what's called the Awareness Study, um, University of Southampton study of 2014 with uh, 2,060 patients. And uh, this is a very extensive um, uh, 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 a summary. He says um, in, in his thing, uh, about 11% of people uh, who are clinically dead have what he calls a definitive near-death experience. He has extremely strict criteria for what a near-death experience is. And he says it's 11%, but he also says that there are a lot of people who either have a sense of either consolation or a lot of people who have a sense of darkness uh, who come back, they're resuscitated, but they didn't have a near-death experience. They didn't have a sense of uh, floating out of their body, um, et cetera. But what they did have was a sense of darkness or foreboding. So he talked about that. Um, there was an earlier study that was published in the Lancet, which is the number one medical journal of Great Britain. And uh, again, very good peer reviewed study by uh, Dr. Pim von Lommel and his colleagues. And in that, I think that was 2001 study, or maybe 2003 study. But uh, in any case, um, that one, he reported that about 18 to 19% of adults uh, have, um, you know, a near-death experience when they are clinically dead. And he thought that about um, uh, one to two percent were negative and dark, and the rest were um, uh, either neutral, like the person was hanging around, as it were, in the, um, in the operating room or maybe outside the hospital walls, etc., but did not have part two of the experience. So that's called an OBD, an out-of-body experience, but they um, did not have an, an NDE, a near-death experience where um, the body goes into a heavenly domain or a darker hellish domain. Um, and so that part of it, um, um, well, he, he reports just higher incidence uh, in general. So it's somewhere in between. Children, on the other hand, uh, well, over 80% of children who um, flatline, as you put it, uh, who are clinically dead, uh, about 80% to 85% of children have um, either an OBD or an NDE, an out-of-body experience, or a near-death experience. And so uh, in that particular uh, case, those children, 100%, uh, virtually 100%, um, have a good experience, a heavenly experience, and a very large number of them, uh, you know, including that uh, Colton uh, uh, Bufo, the remember the uh, um, heaven is for real uh, boy, um, he also um, uh, had uh, a very, uh, you know, positive. Um, uh, heavenly experience and did see Jesus uh, in the midst of that uh, experience. And um, it is interesting that the little kids who have the experience of Jesus, and I said it, it's a large percentage who do, those kids, 
uh, there was a, a girl um, uh, about uh, 20, maybe 15 years ago or so. She actually had, um, she was a very good artist herself, just a little girl who was just artistically talented. They came and brought in some good sketch artists and worked with her and finally kind of drew up this picture of Jesus. And they um, kind of turned it into something that looked more like a photograph you know, through computer enhancements and things of what Jesus might look like. But in any case, uh, you can shuffle that picture in with other pictures like sacred heart pictures or other kinds of pictures. And you can just say to the kids, you know, with 20 different pictures, hey, uh, which one it looks like the Jesus that you saw, um, you know, when you had your near-death experience? The kid going through, going through, going, that one, it's almost always the same picture that um, was taken from what the little girl described. And so it, it is interesting that Jesus seems to be a recurrent feature, um, not only in children's, but also oftentimes, um, when, you know, so when adults see Jesus, uh, sometimes they perceive that the white light that they see in this part too, they perceive that that white light um, is Jesus. Sometimes they call the white light God, uh, implying like God the Father, but oftentimes enough um, that white light is identified as Jesus. So um, in any case, uh, it's very loving white light, and it's, uh, I mean, just blindingly, almost like a resurrection appearance, uh, truly, um, you know, like the apostles' experience that we're celebrating now in the Easter season. Uh, they were having that uh, uh, this experience of this incredibly bright, bright uh, white light, but it doesn't hurt their eyes in any way, shape, or form, and they are just overwhelmed by love, and all pain ceases. So the minute they get to that beautiful place, and uh, so many people report when they get there, right, that it's not just the white light. Frequently enough, they come to sort of a domain, the border, as it were, of a very, very beautiful place, and they are amazed uh, by the, the beauty of it. And uh, all pain comes to an end. Psychological pain, emotional pain, physical pain just comes to an end. And then um, oftentimes they are greeted by some relatives. Um, some of them sometimes, uh, like with little kids, frequently enough, they didn't know that relative um, you know, because they were dead before the, the little child uh, really was cognizant of them, either wasn't born yet or uh, he or she was uh, uh, too little to really have any, uh, you know, cognizant or rec recognizable cognizance of them. So anyway, the long and short of it is it, uh, that these people come down and greet them. And, and of course, in the case of people who return, they go, well, this is not your time. Uh, but, uh, you know, here's what you can expect or something of that nature. And people will say, well, you know, you know, they, they will come back and, and uh, they'll say, well, so-and-so, like, you know, my aunt Gertrude told me that uh, you, so the, maybe he's speaking to his mother, that you and she had a teddy bear, you know, and, uh, and it had a secret name. And the mother will go, wow, yeah. And of course, his aunt Gertrude is, is uh, her sister. And she goes, oh, what was the teddy bear's name? Um, and, uh, and of course, uh, 
uh, he'll identify the secret name and then, you know, the mother will be blown away. You remember Colton Buffo again from the, um, uh, you know, Evidence for Real. And remember him, he met his little sister, his little sister. And if anybody thinks that uh, babies inside the womb don't have a soul, guess again, because uh, um, Colton's sister was only two months old and was in the womb of um, her mother. And, uh, and uh, she comes, she's the first, right? She comes right to greet her brother. And she throws her arms around her brother and kisses him. And of course the brother goes, well, well, who are you? And she goes, well, I'm your sister. And he goes, uh, I wasn't aware that I had a, a sister like you. Uh, what's your name? And of course she goes, well, I don't have a name yet. And he goes, oh, why not? Well, mom and dad, uh, didn't uh, quite know whether I was a boy or a girl. So they, they just uh, didn't name me. Well, Colton goes back, as you know, and, and uh, he drops this on his mom just incidentally. You know, he says, hey, mom, you know, I, I was in heaven, I, I met my sister. And she, she goes, well, don't be silly. You know your sister, she's right here. No, not that sister, I met another sister. And she goes, well, what do you mean another sister? Well. She came up to me and told me that she, you were, uh, that she was in your tummy, but you, uh, but uh, she couldn't stay there, and so she died, and so she's in heaven. And the mother goes, she's just dropping the jaw, right? Oh, I could imagine. <laughs> what was her name? And he said, well, you and Dad didn't name her. <laughs> wow. And of course, that was it. You know. <laughs> wow. Oh but my goodness! Frequently happens, you know. So you have this huge record uh, that would the Kellys and Bruce Grayson and Emily Kelly and her husband. Um, there's a whole uh, institute um, at the University of Virginia Medical School that's dedicated to the near-death studies. These Kellys and Bruce Grayson put together a profile of many, many of these people who had deathbed visions. I mean, not deathbed, but who had uh, near-death experiences where they had actually witnessed and experienced a deceased relative and in uh, that heavenly domain and through that, um, um, you know, identified data that these kids couldn't possibly have known or the adults couldn't possibly have known. How immensely consoling. I'm blown yeah. away. Yeah, that's, oh, that's yeah. the feeling I have. You know, and as, you, as you might expect for a blind guy like me, 81% of blind people who experience clinical death see for the first time when they're clinically dead. Now, of course, these people could, you know, that this just kills the hallucination hypothesis, right? Because blind people who are blind from birth, uh, which I was not blind from birth, but people who are blind from birth, they have no visual images in their brain. And so the, the idea that you're going to hallucinate with your physical brain, uh, you know, a visual image, which you never had because you were blind from birth uh, from your brain is completely preposterous. Brilliant. So yeah. You know, um, mm. that 81% of these blind people see for the first time. And what's interesting is, 
you know, like one of the experience, uh, one of the kids we, we use and we, we have these modules um, on, on near-death experiences for the young people. Uh, it's called the seven essential modules. And module one is just on the proof, the evidence of a soul. And so one of the kids, we have embedded videos in these modules. And uh, one of the kids uh, is a 16 year old kid and he goes right through the, uh, the hospital walls and he goes, you know, when I was sitting out there in the hospital for the first time in my life, I looked down and I said, why that's snow on the ground there. And he, you know, I saw the train tracks embedded in the snow. That's how I knew it was snow. And, and, uh, and uh, you know, he begins, he says, you know, this train came by just as I was standing out there, um, you know, and, uh, and uh, it had a big, huge sign on the back of it with an arrow pointing to the right. And it, it went right through this grove of trees and then went, you know, to the right, um, you know, and, uh, and um, uh, disappeared out of view. Now, there's no way. I mean, you, now you can take a train schedule and you can say, yes, that train passed that point right outside that hospital at exactly this time when that guy was uh, having an out-of-body experience. And it did have a big, huge sign with a big arrow pointing to the right on the back of that train. And it did go through a grove of trees. So all I can say is, how did a blind guy do that? Well, and by the way, it was outside the hospital walls. How do you get outside the hospital walls? Something is going on. Wow. And that's why it draw drops the, the, the kids. It really does. The, 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 the students who, who listen to these modules just can't believe what they're hearing. Father, you describe some of the things people experience when they have a positive near-death experience in that second phase. Yeah. Uh, they see familiar family members or maybe non-familiar family members who are have been praying for them. They see Christ. Uh, they see angels. What are some of the experiences that people would describe as negative? You said maybe a darkness or a foreboding nature. Um, what are some of those experiences like that people recount? And would you say that the statistical reporting of those is lower than anticipated because people neglect to share that they had a negative experience? Yeah, I think um, a lot of those negative experiences are repressed, um, which means that uh, they basically might appear in the subconscious mind, but they're certainly not appearing in the conscious mind because uh, uh, we, we have a thing called the reticular activating system and we can screen out um, images and screen out even visual data that we do not want to see or even that we don't expect to see. So, um, uh, we can focus uh, so clearly. So, uh, you know, people don't really believe it, but if you ever saw that movie, you know, where they uh, uh, told everybody, now just count the number of people on, on the team, uh, you know, how many people were on the floor for team, uh, for the white team, and how many people were on the floor for the black team. And of course, people were counting all these things, and, t- you know, and, you know, you can do this in a room where everybody's watching the same movie. And, um, and, and then finally you say, okay, uh, that's good, that's good. Uh, did anybody see the gorilla uh, come out and start uh, dribbling the basketball? And people go, the gorilla? You know, and so they're, uh, they go, no, there was no gorilla. You know, and then, oh, let me play the very same video for you again. And sure enough, there's this gorilla that comes out, bouncing a basketball, looks at the screen and disappears. You know, if you are not looking for it, 
if you're really looking for how many people have white uniforms and how many have black uniforms, for all intents and purposes, right, you, uh, you can even screen that out. Well, people can repress very negative things, and we do this all the time. And if we didn't, I mean, we'd go nuts, quite frankly. We'd all have PTSD. So, uh, For an um, example is always your nose. I mean, if you try yeah. to see your nose, you can see your nose. But in normal daily life, you don't see your nose because otherwise it would drive you nuts. And that's kind of the... Yeah. the phenomenon you're you're talking about right especially if you had a schnoz like ryan delacross if you had a schnoz like that could you imagine looking at that every day uh, it's a good thing father spitzer doesn't see my nose right now <laughs> it is an action of mercy trust me isn't that? <laughs> so yeah people do repress it but those who remember it uh you know, can report everything from deep darkness and foreboding and loneliness and emptiness. That's one experience all the way up to, yes, demonic presences uh, that um, uh, seem to be uh, trying to grip them or hold them down or to possess them. Have you ever come across uh, and, and studied the near-death experiences or visions or prophetic uh, nature of private revelation, um, you know, if a, if a saint had a vision of heaven, hell, or purgatory, um, kind of in relationship to private revelation and what you study scientifically, ha have you ever looked at any of that or, or, or researched any of that? And, and were there common experiences to say like a St. Faustina uh, vision of, of heaven, hell, or purgatory and, and, and somebody else's uh, account? Well, I haven't done that myself, but I imagine some other researchers may have done it. Uh, I haven't read any of that literature uh, of anybody who made any kind of consistent or systematic study or tried to find points of comparison. Um, if, it, if it exists, I'd be most interested to read it. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, right now, I'm, I'm not familiar with it. It's certainly not in the scientific literature or the medical literature. Uh, along those lines, but there might be some spiritual books uh, on it. But, um, you know, uh, we have to, uh, you know, you know, all of these things are anecdotal. So and some of them could be produced, you know, by our own uh, visions, what what really, where science can get access to it, um, you know, is um, when somebody reports seeing Aunt Gertrude, or when Colton reports seeing his sister and they give you facts and information mm -hmm. you could have never, uh, you know, had exposure to or yeah. uh, was never disclosed to you because you were a little kid. And then suddenly, you know, all this stuff and kids are the best witnesses because they have no agenda whatsoever. Now, what's really interesting, though, um, you know, is that uh, you can actually modify a polygraph, you know, a lie detector, as it were. Uh, you can modify a polygraph to look at the uh, response of the nervous system to various kinds of images like uh, death images and death stimuli. And um, interestingly, anybody who's been through a near-death experience, adult or child, if you, um, and, uh, or at least a remembered near-death experience, there could have been a near-death experience that was suppressed, et cetera, et cetera. 
But for those who have recollection of the near-death experience, uh, that particular uh, uh, person uh, definitely would be, um, uh, you know, capable of, uh, of um, you know, recalling it. Um, and um, they, if you show them death images, you show them skull and crossbones and sharks and all kinds of death images, most people have an immediate uh, response, right? A nervous response uh, to the death image because it's a subconscious response. Y you can't do anything uh, to stop it. Even if you have a lot of faith and you go, oh, those things don't bother me. In your conscious mind, they may not, but in their subconscious mind, they still do. And that's but, measured and quantified by that polygraph reading, correct? Polygraph. But if you show it to a person with a near-death experience, zero death anxiety. Go figure that. That is it. That's very interesting. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I'm very what curious, are, Father Spitzer, to, to, to dive a little bit deeper into something you brought up with respect to the vision or the conscious experience of the boot and the specific way that the, the, um, you know, the shoelace was under the heel of it. And yeah. it, it seemed that, you know, on a temporal sphere, the experience consciously uh, is is not on, on along lines of like a, a temporal linear kind of experience. It seems like the consciousness of of the person with this near death experience is modified in some way where where time is affected. Yeah, that's uh, very true. Now, if they're looking at something um, that's going on, for example, in the hospital room, uh, something of that nature. Um, that does seem to have a temporal continuity that's pretty similar to um, the temporal continuity that's actually occurring. So there's no collapse of time or no expansion of time. Um, you know, that, that's, you know, if it's something in the operating room or something outside the hospital in this world, that's true. However, when they go to a different domain, this heavenly domain or if it may be a hellish one, it seems like they have a huge number of experiences in a relatively short time. So, for example, again, you know, I, I you know, there are many other examples besides Colton, um, you know, and uh, the little kid. I mean, there's another uh, book on, um, you know, uh, that that was uh, well. There are several major studies that have been done, as I said, by by. Um, the Kellys, etc. Now, those people um, uh, seem to have just like huge catalogs of experiences um, that uh, that are um, very, very difficult to explain in like three, four minutes. You know that the experience is taking place, and yet they, you know they go from one place to another place, and and Colton, you know, uh, recounts these images that are going on and in so many different uh, contexts, um, yet at the same time, they all seem to happen within that three to four minute period when he was out of body. Now, Father, has there been any studies or any input on maybe uh, individuals of not of a Christian tradition, maybe a, yes. a Muslim or a Hindu? Yeah. Um, yes. And what is their experience comparatively to those? And is their experience impacted by their religious nature during their lifetime, or do they also see Jesus and have experienced the same type of things? Well, with respect to the OBD part, 
the out-of-body experience uh, part, you know, um, 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 that part basically is pretty similar because again, you're describing what's going on in a temporal or worldly context. Now, when they pass to another world, the initial moment of what they experience, right, can be uh, more culturally adept to the images that they would be expecting or seeing. And so their relatives might come to them maybe in Indian uh, clothing of course. or something of that nature, or <clears throat> they might experience <clears throat> a person who's like a judge uh, in uh, maybe a, a, a Hindu court, you know, it would greet them, you know, uh, as they're coming, you know, to this domain. However, those who would experience uh, the white light, uh, that would be very similar. And in fact, uh, even atheists who have an experience of the white light um, uh, identify that as something, uh, or even agnostics uh, would identify it as something akin to God or the divine or divine love or something of that nature, pretty similar um, to, uh, to what we might um, uh, experience. Uh, I don't, you know, I know A.J. Ayer, who was the great logical positivist. Um, remember, uh, he kind of tried to push God out of philosophy. Uh, he did have a near-death experience, and he did report it to his nurses when he came back. But boy, I'll tell you, all of his friends rushed in uh, from Cambridge and basically said, oh, you know, uh, don't be talking about this stuff. So from then on, he zipped up his mouth and never talked about his near-death experience. Although he did disclose it to several nurses and they disclosed it to the world. So, um, yeah, I mean, even A.J. Ayer. So imagine that. Father, I'm very curious about the history of these types of studies. And the reason why is because I think a lot of medical, a lot of the medical community, meaning doctors and, you know, professors and things, there could be sects of those who, uh, like our friend here from Cambridge, um, that do their best to, to, to kind of remove God from uh, medicine. And, and obviously we're into a lot of the moral uh, um, functions of the medical community now with euthanasia, obviously abortion's always been there. Yeah. Uh, but what, what is the impetus of this study and what, what does the medical community hope to gain from it? Because it seems like we're the only ones gaining from it. I don't know. <laughs> right. Well, here's two, maybe here some statistics might matter. Even though the, uh, the, People in the popular media try to pretend like most doctors are agnostics or atheists. They are not. 88% of doctors, according to a big study uh, from the National Institute of Health, 88% are religiously affiliated. And of that um, number, 66% uh, are moderately to highly affiliated with their religion. So doctors are by no means um, agnostics or, or atheists. They are believers. Now, um, there was another very large study that was done of scientists in general, 
And that study was done by the Pew Center on the American Association for the Advancement of Science Members. And their determination was that 51% of scientists believed in God or a higher supernatural power, and 41% declared themselves to be either agnostic or atheist, with 8% probably being too scared to declare. So um, the, the main point, though, is, is no, even with scientists, uh, the majority of scientists are theistically inclined. And um, these are big, major studies. So the popular uh, opinion that scientists and doctors are really agnostics and atheists, that's not really true. Um, it's quite the opposite, especially for the doctors. And I have a very good reasons why I believe that doctors um, oh, by the way, 71% of doctors, according to, this was a Finkelstein uh, study um, that was done, um, uh, um, 71% of doctors believe in miracles past and present. So that's, again, you know, that, that's like, wow. Um, you know, that that's a pretty high statistic. You know, nearly three quarters of the medical population even believe in miracles. And I, the reason I believe that this is the case is because doctors do see miracles. Doctors do see and hear about uh, deathbed visions. Doctors do hear about people who are resuscitated and have had the very experiences we were talking about. Doctors really do experience people who have healings that are absolutely inexplicable. Now, of course, they don't go publicly declaring, why, this is a miracle. They, you know, they want to keep their scientific protocols and their, you know, their, uh, uh, their, their scientific green card, uh, you know, um, in good shape. So they, they don't go around proclaiming things that they don't have absolute evidence of. But um, by and large, most people, I think privately, a lot of doctors really have seen things that they find so inexplicable, it really turns them around. It's like those two doctors at Lourdes. Uh, I don't know if you ever read um, uh, Franz uh, Werfel wrote a book on uh, Lourdes. Um, and it was called The Song of Bernadette. It's a really beautiful book. But in any case, uh, in that book, this Dr. Dozu is the one whose name I remember, uh, was very, very skeptical. Oh, you, know, you got to be kidding me, you water, you know, uh, going to cure people, a blessed Virgin Mary appearing. Uh, you know, he was very skeptical. And then all of a sudden, he begins to, uh, he has all the x-rays of this little kid who just gets the mother in desperation, goes running over to the, the water font that's spilling from the exact place that Bernadette had identified. And she just throws her little kid, you know, who's paralyzed and, and not just paralyzed, but is going through a fit that's going to lead um, almost immediately to death. And he has suffered uh, throughout his entire life from this disease, Throw, puts him in the water, brings him out, and the baby's completely cured. Those who, you know, suddenly goes, whoa, you know, there's something going on here. And of course, then he sees another six or so of these miracles. And he then turns on a dime and instead of being the guy who goes to the bar discussing all the latest liberal uh, trends of, you know, you know how science has overcome the miraculous and the superstitious in religion, he becomes the advocate of religion and becomes one of the first doctors uh, to monitor the clinics 
um, that are being built around the Lourdes Grotto. So just, I think this happens all the time to docs. But um, again, if you don't read these studies from the Pew Center or from the National Institute of Health or from the uh, um, you know Finkelstein uh, Institute, et cetera, if you don't read, they're, they're good studies. <clears throat> You'd almost think from the popular media, <clears throat> every scientist as an atheist, but in point of fact, the majority of scientists are theists. You know, and Father, I think it's important to note that you are a Catholic priest, you are a Jesuit, but you are also deeply um, ingrained in academia, or in academia, you were a professor at Georgetown, you were the president of Gonzaga University, you were a professor at uh, St. Louis University, you have multiple degrees, doctorates. I mean, you're, you are a priest, but you are also a man of logic and reason. You're not just, you know, so, but I think a lot of times someone watching this might say, well, of course the priest believes that when you die, you see Jesus, he's supposed to, that's his job. That's why he has a collar. But you are not just a priest with, you know, what they will dismiss as Bronze Age mythology. I mean, yeah. There is, there's more to what you're saying. And I think it's important to note that you have those bona fides so that when you talk on this, yeah. that it, it's coming from the perspective of that faith and also of reason, like a scientific pursuit should be. Yeah, and that's precisely it. The, um, you may as well have the empirical data. You may as well uh, uh, statistically categorize it and assess it. And uh, you may as well also um, uh, use logic in every single turn and uh, remember those three great logical rules. Uh, you need the most complete, uh, the explanation that explains the most evidence wins. That's number one. Number two, that uh, you need uh, objectively verifiable evidence. And number three, um, there are uh, um, far more errors of omission than commission. And then you take those uh, those three rules and you pile them on, of course, the rules of formal logic so we don't make any formal syllogistic errors. And you probably can get pretty close to the truth. And if you keep doing that again and again and again with near-death experiences, and you keep doing that again, and I mean, like you take that that maxim, the, the, the theory that explains the most evidence wins. Well, near-death experiences are not explained by physicalist explanations. I mean, they don't explain how 81% of blind people can see. They do not explain how you can have veridical evidence that is reported by people outside the hospital, et cetera, reported 100% accurately. They do not explain, right? Uh, hallucinations are oftentimes confusing and very, very, uh, you know, um, uh, dark in, in many ways. And they, they, they present uh, images that are disturbing to consciousness Near-death experiences almost universally are very heartening to people unless you have a direct, bad, dark experience, um, you know, that, that uh, uh, you know, of a kind of a hellish kind uh, or a um, you know, foreboding emptiness kind. Um, but the rest of the time, it's really, uh, they're, they're not like hallucinations at all. They're very different. But if you look at it, yeah, the heavenly explanation the transcendent soul explanation, the transcendent soul capable of surviving um, bodily death explanation, the God who is a loving God explanation tends to explain much, much more than any current physicalist theory. And there was a fellow, um, his name was um, Mario Beauregard, Dr. Mario Beauregard, a neuroscientist 
over there at um, the University of Arizona. Uh, he wrote a book called Brain Wars, Brain Wars. And uh, so if you, uh, if you have a, you know, an inclination, um, you might want to take a look at that because he takes every single physicalist, naturalist explanation and just rips into what's the problem? What is not explained by this theory? Yes, a, a naturalistic explanation may explain one or two points out of 20, but you got to explain the other 18 points. And frankly, the transphysical soul explanation uh, does that much better than the physicalist ones. And the second thing uh, to, you know, I, I, if you're interested in a summary of it, I have a, a book called uh, The Soul's Upward Yearning. Um, if you go to chapter five, uh, I have a summary of uh, uh, what Beauregard and his colleagues um, have uh, have done by way of research. I'll make sure I put links to those books on our page so that people, if they want to read more about that sure. study or about your book, they can go ahead and access that. And also, I think it's a good time to mention that if you do want to learn more and see more content from Father Spitzer, you can go to magiscenter.com and you can go to crediblecatholic.com. And there you're going to find all sorts of amazing things <laughs> on cosmology, on science, on philosophy, Um I've been on there so many times, I couldn't tell you. I, I fanboy over his site, so it's really great to be able to get the opportunity <laughs> yeah. to talk to him. But those resources, if you're a curious Catholic, if you're a curious agnostic and you have the, the, um, the desire to learn more from a balanced perspective, go check that out. So magiscenter.com and Credible Catholic, I'll make sure the links are below on that. Great. Thank you. you Father Spitzer, I can speak very, very confidently on behalf of Ryan and Ryan and our Catholic talk show family. We are so appreciative of your ministry, your deposit of faith and intellect and reason. It is such a gift. It has been a gift to each of us. I, I am totally lit up right now, and I'm confident all of our listeners and viewers are as well. Wonderful. We want to take a moment and just express our gratitude to our patrons that make it possible for this show to continue. If you're considering becoming a financial contributor to the show, be sure to go to catholictalkshow.com forward slash Patreon. And there you'll be able to support the show. We've got some cool gear to send your way. As we build out the culture of our faith and live that communally, it is such a gift to have Father Spitzer on to share from such a, a wonderful perspective of great academic study. And please follow up with the links that Ryan Shield is putting in our comment section. Check out Father Spitzer's materials. Be sure to support him in prayer and share this beautiful work. I know personally from my experience working with a, a relative that is a doctor, he has come to the faith uh, through examples, just like Father Spitzer. And, you know, from an agnostic background, to a you know a weekly attendee in his in his denomination of Christianity, I'm just so proud of the work that you've done, Father Spitzer, and thank you for sharing your perspective today. As, no, no, it's uh, my my honor and pleasure. Thanks so much, you guys. Absolutely. Now, before we let you go, we've got to give a big shout out to our sponsors. Our sponsor, Hallow, is the number one Catholic app in the App Store today, and there is great reason for it. The materials that they have on there that spiritually enrich from the Catholic tradition of prayer and mysticism is mind-blowing. They have the Bible in a year with Father Michael Schmitz, which I am clearly no Father Michael Schmitz, but his materials are just absolutely inspiring. 
They have Lexio Divina. You know, you could pray with your family, your spouse. And I know Ryan Delacrosse is a big fan and uses it every day. That's right. Yeah, it's a great app. I use it with my kids. Uh, a lot of times you struggle with prayer. If you find yourself struggling with prayer, it's easy to, to just turn on this app and be guided to a meditation. And the guidance of this meditation is ancient Catholic tradition. Um, and you won't be, uh, I mean, it, it's just amazing to connect to God through this tradition and to be guided by somebody that can help you that's knowledgeable about it. So I highly recommend it. And our other uh, sponsor is Catholic Woodworker. Um, this, this is, these are the most amazing rosaries and sacramentals that you can find out there. And, uh, you know, heirloom quality rosaries that are highly crafted. You could actually choose some of your own materials, go check them out. Uh, it's catholicwoodworker.com. And, uh, you'll see a lot of amazing quality Catholic, um, rosaries and, and other, uh, products there for you as well. Yeah. Check so out the crucifixes, check out those home altars. That's a really great thing to bring into your home as an altar, as a place to focus your your prayer life within your home with your family. Uh, that's one of the things that makes Catholic Woodworker really, um, really unique and a really great place to go. So again, hey guys, I think we've kind of made it. We've got Father Spitzer on our podcast finally. I think. <laughs> finally, from the beginning. We, we, have met, we have met one of our big goals. Good job, guys. Yes, it took us 135 God. episodes or so, but we're getting there. <laughs> Thanks, Father Spitzer. God bless you. God bless, God bless each and every one of you out there. Thank you for bringing us into your home with the talk show on YouTube. Click the bell and click subscribe today. You don't want to miss materials each and every week. And we will see you next week. God bless.